we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, September 4th, 2020. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson. Thank you for joining me on this beautiful sunny day. Our feature interview today is with two local community activists, Don Larson and the local Indigenous elder known as Veronica, who are both leading advocates for the completion of Crab Park in Vancouver. Veronica and Don have spent over 35 years advocating for this park, not only for the human residents who frequent Crab Park at Portside, but for the non-human animals too. Part of the project includes restoring the bird marsh, which has been neglected by the park board and contains invasive plants, which are toxic to the birds and soak up all of the water in their small area so that they can barely stretch their legs as they swim. Dawn shares in this interview that in addition to the marsh's poor quality, the barbed wire which has been erected around the parking lot since the recent eviction of local tent city residents makes it so that the area is dangerous for the birds. A completed crab park, meeting all demands from Crab Water for Life Society and Namigan's Nation 2.0 Tent City, would include an expansion of the bird marsh, as well as an indigenous healing lodge where humans and animals would both find safety. That interview is coming up later on in the hour, so stay tuned. Tomorrow, September 5th, is Turkey Vulture Day. It's safe to say that vultures in general, and turkey vultures in particular, have a pretty bad reputation. These scavengers are often depicted hovering over some helpless cowboy lost in an arid desert, licking their beaks in cruel anticipation. Sadly, this stereotype has some negative consequences in the real world. In order to correct it, conservation groups have made the first Saturday in September Vulture Awareness Day, also called Turkey Vulture Day. With some species under severe threat of extinction, the day aims to educate a reluctant public in the critical role of this creature in the well-being of the environment. With vultures traditionally being perceived as representing death and decay, conservationists involved in preserving their numbers have faced an uphill battle in fundraising efforts and in making theirs a more sympathetic cause. Hopefully, the joint effort of South Africa's Birds of Prey program and England's Hawk Conservancy Trust in establishing a day of vulture awareness will change public attitudes. The key role of the vulture in signaling the presence of a carcass to other scavengers prevents contamination by pathogens and helps keep natural environments free of disease. Here's a clip from the Cleveland Museum of Natural History on the fascinating turkey vulture. Welcome to another edition of Creature Feature. I'm Harvey Webster, and with me today is Vinny, our turkey vulture, AKA turkey buzzard, AKA buzzard. More about the name in a little bit. Turkey vultures are actually one of our most commonly seen birds here in Northeastern Ohio. And as a species, they range from Southern Canada all the way to the Southern tip of South America. 
The reason I say this is one of the most commonly seen birds is that oftentimes when turkey vultures take to the air, they soar on their majestic six-foot wingspan. If you stretch a tape measure from the tip of the primary feathers there across the back to the tip of this wing, it's six feet, and they're almost three and a half feet long, and they, it's as if they have a feather for every wind. They get up in the sky, they spread those majestic wings out, they fan their tail, and then they find places where air is rising up off the ground, warm air, something we call a thermal, and they ride the thermals. It's not that they hover, but they soar. They circle in those rising columns of warm air that take them ever higher, and then they use that vantage point to scan the ground for the things that they want to eat. And then they can glide in the direction that they might want to go and find another thermal and circle right back up again. Now, one of the cool things about turkey vultures is when they're up there in the sky, they're looking for things to eat. Now, they like to eat things like other birds of prey. They like to eat mice and rats and rabbits, except for they don't kill anything. They eat things that are already dead. We call that carrion. And we call animals that eat carrion scavengers. So this is a scavenger. Now, to find reasonably fresh food, it has to be dead enough that it's got an odor coming off it. Because what a turkey vulture will do is they'll get up in the sky on these big wings, and they'll soar. But when they soar, they have their wings in a V shape. Just remember, V for vulture. And while they're up there circling around the sky, oftentimes they're looking for food on the ground, but you might have a plume of smell rising up off of a dead animal's body. Very curiously, turkey vultures have a highly developed sense of smell. And what they will do is they will start flying lower and lower and follow that plume of smell until they get to treetop level. Now, treetop level, the problem is, is that the winds can be very, very turbulent. And so the neat thing about having your wings in a V-shape, if you hit a little pocket of turbulence, you kind of get blown this way, and then you tend to rock right back into a stable formation again. And you cover those, you're flying along at treetop level because now you can get closer and closer until finally you can find that dead animal even if you couldn't see it, even if it's covered with vegetation. Now, one of the neat things about this guy is he eats dead stuff. Now, you'd think that dead stuff, a dead animal, would just be the last thing in the world that an animal would ever want to eat because you'd figure they'd get sick. But he has several adaptations that actually help him eat dead stuff. Number one, featherless head. Why would a featherless head be important? Well, let's say you come down on a carcass and there's just a couple little openings. I'll leave it to your imagination what those openings might be. But to get a bite of meat, you have to actually stick your head in and use your hoof beak to grab that flesh. If you had feathers covering your face, those feathers would get soiled and all of those bacteria would be living on your face. By having a featherless head, this is a great adaptation for keeping your head clean. Take a look at his nose. You can look right through Vinny's nose. It turns out that they don't have a septum, at least on the part of the nostril that you can see, and that functions as a shield. So by having that bony shield in front of the nostrils, it prevents the rotten food from getting up into the nose. Also a pretty good adaptation if you're sticking your head into a dead animal's body. And then finally, they've got a digestive system that is just extraordinary for several reasons. Number one, highly acidic, 10 to 100 times more acidic than your stomach. And that acidity helps kill lots of the microbes and lots of the bacteria that might be in that food. And then that brings us to the last thing, buzzard. Is this really a buzzard? Well, it turns out buzzard, the word buzzard, 
in the ornithological lexicon, that is in the world of birds, refers to a bird like our red-tailed hawk. Only they refer to birds that come from um, the old world, from Europe, Asia, and Africa. So this is not a buzzard. The correct name is turkey vulture. Turkey because of the featherless red head, like a wild turkey, and vulture because of its ever endearing lifestyle and feeding habits, eating on dead stuff. So as we approach the Ides of Mar March, get outside of your house, look skyward, look for the distinctive silhouette of the turkey vulture soaring overhead. All hail the buzzard. This is Harvey Webster with another edition of Creature Features. Everybody marches to their own beat. At our West End plant-based restaurant Beatbox, whether you're a vegetarian, vegan, or flexitarian, we've got a taste-first menu of meat alternatives that fits everyone's lifestyle. From conscious comfort food, like our signature fried chicken sandwich, made with breaded and fried seitan, crispy gorditas and green pea falafels, to warm bowls, hot and cold sides and salads, we've got plenty of plant-based ways to get you thinking inside the box. 1074 Davie Street. Online orders are available for pickup and delivery through BeatBoxVeg.com. That's B-E-E-T BoxVeg.com. And now for the news, a petition calling on the BC Conservation Officer Service to relocate rather than euthanize a black bear that swatted a woman on the upper Coquitlam Crunch Trail last Saturday is gaining attention. Nearly 1,600 people have signed the online petition at change.org, with many saying humans, not bears, are the problem, while others are criticizing development in Coquitlam for encroaching on bear territory. The woman who was touched by the bear hasn't reached out to the Tri-City News who reported on this, but CTV reports she wasn't hurt in the incident and the contact felt like being scratched by a dog. In the video, the woman sees the bear at the edge of the trail and freezes, at which point the bear walks up to her and taps her and then rushes away briefly. When the bear saunters back toward her, the woman uses the opportunity to continue her run down the trail and the bear watches her go. The man who shot the widely seen video of the incident, Sam Abdullah, also wants the bear to be relocated and says he's concerned the crunch bear is being mistaken for another larger bear who has been causing trouble in the area. He said, I believe the bear isn't dangerous to the community as his reaction is normal when he found himself surrounded by the runner. The runner froze and the bear was trying to defend himself gently, he says. Um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much the gist of that story. Um, it is alarming to me. We've talked about this on the show a number of times before, how in this area, in many areas, um, when there are bears who live close to where humans live, it seems like very often the automatic reaction when they have too close of contact with humans or they come too close to human homes is to immediately euthanize them. Um, Allison, did you have thoughts on that? That's that's always my thought whenever I see one of these stories and there's been a number of them on in the news this year whenever we see that uh, wildlife and uh, that humans are encroaching upon wildlife we can call it because they're and it's it seems like it's it does happen in Coquitlam a lot in the lower mainland but even in my parents backyard in 
on northern Vancouver Island and where I grew up in another house in the same town, we had bears in our yard. The bears, you know, we're living right, right at the edge of the forest. But wherever, you know, wherever there is that overlap, it's not that the bears are encroaching onto our territory. It's that the humans are encroaching like they were there first, right? And mm-hmm. so so suddenly a bear a bear comes down the street in Coquitlam because he or she is hungry and he's going through garbage cans and someone takes the video of this because it's sort of a peculiar or interesting site. They post it on Facebook and the next thing you know, the conservation officers are um are darting that poor bear and euthanizing him basically that that bear he or she no longer has a chance and that's what happened that that's that's what i thought of when i heard about this story this week for sure is that poor bear he or she just because there was um like they literally ran into each other on a bridge it looked like and mm-hmm. it was neither of their of their fault they they're both taking a stroll one was taking a run and um and the bear sort of just poked her I, it seemed kind of friendly and whether it was or not now that that incident has been reported it was reported on it was posted on facebook the man who took the video and posted it is now actually apologetic and i believe he started the petition is because he doesn't he's realized what he's done that he put he basically advertised here's a bear to shoot um and i think he's learned from that now obviously because he took that video down realizing what he had done and now that poor bear has um that has a target on his his or her back mm-hmm. because because of this incident and it's really it's really not the bear's fault and the, I mean what can I say about the humans their 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 suburban development is already there just you know with the trees across the street or whatever right and it's not just Coquitlam it happens all over Canada we're a country of wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are a few ways that all of us can help. Obviously, you know, if you live in an area where there are bears, it's so important to keep any attractants secured, you know, securing your garbage and all that kind of stuff, not doing anything that would draw them toward your yard or draw them Mm -hmm. toward you because obviously that puts them at great risk of being euthanized. This bear, I think, still has a chance. The uh, inspector... Murray Smith apparently said that a decision hasn't been made yet. Um, so if you would like, you can find the petition on our Facebook page at uh, Animal Voices Vancouver. And also in local news, the Vancouver Aquarium is set to close indefinitely due to the COVID-19 pandemic. They will close to visitors starting September 8th, and it's unclear when they will reopen. Um, OceanWise has announced that it will temporarily pause public programming at the aquarium in order to, quote, focus on transforming to a new model that addresses the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. OceanWise says it will also take the time to focus on accelerating ocean conservation. So this obviously was big news in the animal rights community, especially Mm -hmm. locally this week. Um, Activists are as we have always been, are already putting pressure on the aquarium to consider changing their model from a zoo-type model to more of a sanctuary, more of a rescue, and to focus on that. 
Right. The good part is, is that the the marine rescue portion of the aquarium will still stay open because that's not open to visitors anyways. Mm-hmm. It's just that their cetacean and their, they have over 70,000 animals. It's hard to believe, right? Yeah. I, I don't remember the last time I've been at the zoo, but I asked someone, what are all the animals? And I guess they just have different, I just can't imagine, but are you familiar, Elise? I think they have just like many different types of breeds of birds and snakes and things like that. Like it makes up 70,000 I don't know about birds and snakes at yeah. the aquarium, but they have fish. Okay. Like, it's a lot of fish. Oh, okay. Because like, when I was a fish. kid, they had birds and snakes. So oh, I just, okay. That, and the penguins. I remember the penguins. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've been there because um, because it's a ridiculous place. It's not something to support. And if you don't believe me, just go on YouTube and watch the very well-researched film called Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered. And I find it just really sad that a lot of people these days, adults, people with children they're still I mean it showed on the news uh this week when this made the television news they're showing that there's still long lineups for the Vancouver Aquarium and parents lined up with their children probably because they think it's part of their educational summer their educational COVID summer let's go to the aquarium and learn about animals who are being held captive and exploited but that's not the way you know we are we are turning a new leaf over I think in society and I think COVID has forced us to do that we presented a show a couple of weeks ago about um, the wildlife tourism industries globally and one of those includes zoos and aquariums for sure and um, if you look at if you look at the way that the I guess more technologically advanced countries are doing it, and not just technologically advanced, but they're just more um, I guess they're, they're just more advanced in what humanity needs at this time. So Japan, for example, has these in an aquarium that they have. I've, I've seen photos of it. They have this immersive virtual reality holograph display of marine animals so you're under the sea with all of these marine sea life creatures there's a big blue whale I believe it is that just like swims right past you and it's real it's it seems real it seems way more real of an experience than you would actually get at the Vancouver Aquarium especially because those animals are sad and imprisoned and they actually don't even have enough sufficient room to even like turn around in their tanks in some cases for the for the um in the past the whales there and the one remaining dolphin there so if uh, I would like to ask the aquarium and I, I think this is where what you're getting towards is animal activists are saying this is a time to really rethink your business model mm-hmm. and to and to step your feet into perhaps a place that you might be uncomfortable with because it's the first time you're working at it um, and we would like to see animals go to sanctuaries as well and the Vancouver Aquarium has actually opposed the sanctuary uh, the whale sanctuary project which is being put into place like they wouldn't support it mm-hmm. and that's sad that's going to be happening now on the east coast of Canada and to think that they wouldn't support something progressive like that and I want to see them 
support progressive models like the the virtual reality holograms. It's just so cool. I I would love to have that in Vancouver because because Vancouver is known to be a world leader in many things, but mm -hmm. uh, we don't want Vancouver to be a leader in animal exploitation. And I certainly hope that the rest of Vancouverites don't as well. It's not something to be known for. I think we should be known for in our tourism. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so important to emphasize that you don't have to display captive mm -hmm. live animals in order to do effective conservation work or effective rescue work. You know, that, all of those can be yeah. done without it's actually, keeping animals in captivity. Think, think if you were an alien who came onto the planet and saw that that was the way that they did things here on planet Earth or at the Vancouver Aquarium, wouldn't that be, isn't that backwards thinking? It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't. So, right. so think, so I would ask people to sort of try to think out of your traditional box of what you've grown up with. I grew up with the Vancouver Aquarium, like I said, but that doesn't mean as an adult now that I would take my children there. It, it just means that I've learned like when you, when you, when you know better, you do better. And mm -hmm. everyone has a learning process in their lives and it's never too late to learn and at least learn now as an adult so that you don't pass this garbage on to your children. But the Vancouver Aquarium is closed now for visitors. So mm -hmm. We, we don't know what's going to happen when it reopens, and there are, are definitely a lot of opportunities there for a regrowth. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll all be keeping an eye on it and uh, keeping the pressure on, for sure. The Canadian Independent Venue Coalition has been formed by local club owners to address the brutal financial effect of COVID-19 on live music spaces. Most of the government's arts support has gone to nonprofit organizations with small independent venues falling through the cracks. These venues are in very real danger of closing for good. The CIVC encourage you to contact your local and federal officials asking that they address this problem more comprehensively. You could also get in touch with your favorite venues to see how you might help them specifically. For more information on other ways you might help, visit supportcanadianvenues.ca. That's supportcanadianvenues.ca Hi, this is Jim Burnett, and I'm proud to be part of Co-op Radio's stellar lineup of Sunday music shows. All over the map, One O'Clock Jump, In the Pines, What the Folk, and Javulani. It's out of sight. So check us out every Sunday starting at 11 a.m. and running to 7 p.m. right here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM and www.coopradio.org. The following interview was recorded by myself at Strathcona Park next to the Sacred Fire at the center of Kennedy Trudeau Tent City a community which was formed on June 16th following the eviction of residents from Namagan's 2.0 tent city on the Crab Park parking lot 5. Because of the nature of the place where these conversations took place, please be aware that there may be background sound. This gives our listeners just the smallest glimpse into the busy day of one of our featured guests, Anishinaabe elder and sacred firekeeper at Camp KT, Veronica. Veronica joins us to speak about her experience as one of the original members of the Crab Water for Life Society and Sacred Firekeeper at Namagans 2.0. She is joined alongside founder 
of Crab Water for Life Society, Don Larson, who is greatly responsible for the creation and continued advocacy for Crab Park at Portside. Thank you both for joining me today on today's episode. It's so wonderful to have you both on the show. I'm Veronica. How did Crab Park start? Well, about 38 and something years ago, me and a bunch of the crab gang decided we needed a park because there weren't parks in the downtown east side community. And more and more and more, the city was even taking sidewalk green spaces and covering them over with concrete. So we thought a park was such a great idea. And then we began defining uh, what kind of park, which included a waterfront and a view of the working port and uh, not only waterfront but actual beach access where we could walk into the water and stand and watch the uh, working port. It's missing the actual floating raft that was to be there so we could lay on the raft and reach over and put our hands in, in the water. It was supposed to also have a bird marsh and uh, other animals come in, uh, migrate and be able to access fresh water and that there be a children's play area that the design would incorporate totems. So we've done a whole lot of that and there's still so much work to be done yet, which includes what is now the crab parking lot. I'm not sure Many of us had much input into the design of the parking lot, but yet there it is, a crab parking lot. I'm Don Larson. June 1982. I shouldn't say we're smoking weed, but we were. And uh, there's about eight people, I guess. And they're just street people from East Hastings Street, downtown Eastside. Because it's just the people that sometimes are able to do something. Somebody came up with an idea, let's get a park down here. Somebody just threw this idea. The first time I heard I laughed. Then next week we're back again, smoking weed. <laughs> and somebody said it again, we should get a park down here, like on the water. People don't have access to water. They should have it. And I didn't laugh this time. I thought, that's actually a very good idea. <laughs> I just tried to feel something, like, in my heart, which I usually don't. This is important. People throw out ideas, you never see them again. Yeah, park, yeah, okay, put that on your list. And somebody has to go and run off and do it. Nobody's getting paid. To this day, who's making lots of money? Nobody that we know. So this is like grassroots, that's the important thing. Veronica, myself, and a few people, we did a tent in too. It was actually the first one that I knew of in 1984. After we did everything else, like uh, sending letters, lobbying, going to meetings, talking, stuff like that. We did lots of that and didn't end up with a park because nobody wants to hand over land. It's a basic fact. The lobbying did work. I mean, it all adds up. So what happened back in 1984 with the tenting? So myself, I bought a tent and put up a tent. And all there was down there at the time was landfill. There wasn't even a weed. There wasn't uh, a flower, a tree, a shrub, anything. It was just landfill that had been put in from downtown uh, developments. It was all so-called clean landfill. Yeah, well, we ended up with about 60 tents, roughly, 
or 60 people, whichever it was. And it was summertime, so people in the summer were just traveling into Vancouver. It wasn't all that, but there was a lot of people who were just traveling summertime. Somehow they hear by word of mouth that there's a bunch of some people down there now camp on the waterfront. You know, we didn't even put up a poster. It wasn't like, come on down. Like Veronica was inviting like all the homeless people. Like, they're all welcome here. We don't turn anyone away. But we didn't even do that. People will tell other people. People showed up. And we left, and the weather turned really bad. Never kicked you out? No, that was the important point. We packed up and left on our own. We said, we're going to leave now. We're not going to go by the, anybody else's schedule. I mean, they would have kicked us out. It was just a matter of time. But people were getting sick. We had no nurses coming by. No. Nobody was coming by. Everything's changed over the last 35 years. It's a much harder core, like what Veronica has to stand up and deal with at Strathcona. It wasn't like that in 1984. It was much mellower. Some of it. <laughs> yeah, 1984, I got back from going off to Los Angeles. What I know is that 1982, once it was decided that we were going to uh, work toward getting a waterfront park, we named it Create Real Available Beach. We made that decision, and so hence crab. And we were crab people. And we all walked sideways. No, we didn't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, given we uh, were crab people, we liked water and everything. Crab became Crab Water for Life Society, coming together with a Water for Life community. I postered all the way up to Granville. We talked lots about including the community of Strathcona, the community up around Raymer for sure, which meant that we needed to translate into various languages. We did a lot of work with co-op radio, endlessly every single box in co-op radio had our bi-weekly flyers and there was lots of pirated public service announcements for Crab Water for Life and to establish a waterfront beach park for the community. And in 1984, I left from Capilano Longhouse, running all the way to Los Angeles, and then coming back, always with Crab Water for Life Society as a part of the movement that I was a part of, always educating and talking about the needs of the downtown Eastside community, and then arriving back to Vancouver, getting off a bus, and I went into Crab Park and, and put my tent up there. Yeah, we lived there. It was such a busy, active place because we were working on endless development of the downtown east side. When did they actually start establishing the park? 1987. It ends up being five years. If you're going to really try to do something community-wise, right off five years of your life, because it's going to take that long. Nobody's going to just hand you anything. We ended up having a meeting with the Port of Vancouver Corporation. I was there, a couple of people from the downtown east side, and Pat Carney, the conservative MP. None of us are conservatives. And Margaret Mitchell, Vancouver East NDP MP for a long time. They were at the meeting with the port and discussing whether there's going to be a park, what park. Well, they didn't like the idea of the port. <laughs> they don't want to give away acreage. And basically the guy said, we don't do parks. That was his line. This is, this is his blow-off line. It's like, we were there for a park and 
we've done all this stuff, small group of people, downtown Eastside people. To him, it didn't mean anything. And it still doesn't with the port. They're in a different world. Pat Carney got beat red. She was humiliated that this guy basically was showing her the door. MPs are not shown doors. They're used to people bowing down to them. And about six months later, the Conservatives got into the government. Margaret Mitch reminded Pat Carney, hey, we told these people we're going to help get them a park. And now we're the government. They made sure we got the park. It ended up being a seven-acre park, which I thought was pretty good. Thanks to the port pissing them off face-to-face at a meeting. Thank you. So you got your park, but to this day, 38 years later, the park is still incomplete. There's standing demands put together by residents at the tent city back in May. So the demand one is that the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority returns the land surrounding Crab Park to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations who are the stewards of the lands that the port is occupying. No evictions to Crab Park Tent City residents until the federal, provincial, and municipal governments house all houseless and underhoused residents in the downtown east side in places they want to live in and begin construction of 10,000 units of permanent adequate housing renting at welfare pension rates and operated under the control of residence council with cooking facilities no guest restrictions no id requirements where people can safely use drugs the city of vancouver the vancouver park board and the vancouver fraser port authority must honor their commitment to or establish a commitment to work with indigenous organizations to establish a healing lodge at crab park so do you have any comments on the demands and what that is looking like today getting those demands met in 1982 to 87 what i think is the extent of the park includes where the crab parking lot is and the area entirely that was occupied by the tenting community crab park tent city to me that is the completion of crab park In 1987, when the park was dedicated, I accepted the dedication at that time. Always in the background, we were waiting on the completion of the park so that the marsh would be much larger and that as well the expanse of the park would be 11 and a half acres. We're about seven acres now. The overpass as a road is not park don't know who considers roads park but I don't I never have and I don't think most parks are designed in a way that considers roadways as a part of the park seven acres is not that much when it has roadways all around all beside it and through it the completion of crab park would be that parking lot I agreed to allow and and to consider Crab Parking Lot as a place for homeless people. It worked for quite a long while, and everyone respected the fact that Crab Park was not going to be a place where we would make a stand for completion of the park. And that, to me, is a big part of the tent city existing there. Regarding the parking lot... um, after they put the asphalt parking lot in brand new. I did go down there and protest that, and also the heliport, I guess, too, at the same time. The port police came out, took me into the 
airport building. And they told me, if you come back, we're going to just arrest you, and that's it. And it was just me. There was nobody else there. So there was an attempt to protest. I personally think the seven acres, I understand what Veronica is saying, and I agree with her, but the seven acres was a huge frickin' victory. Nobody just gets seven acre parks. Who else is doing that around in, in Vancouver? Where is this happening? No words that I know of. So it, it was a huge victory, but nonetheless, I agree with her, like, the parking lot should be parked. The last Vancouver Park Board and the present Vancouver Park Board unanimously voted for that four-acre parking lot, Lot 5, where the campers were till June 16th when they were driven out of there by the police at the request of the port. Yeah, they both voted for a four-acre parking lot to become public park. That hasn't happened, and we want that. And we're not going away anywhere. This is all going to court case on September 8th, B.C. Supreme Court, in front of a judge who seems to want to persecute homeless people and homeless supporters. He went from Oppenheimer, now he's down at Crab Park. To me, he's, he's, he's not a fair judge. It shouldn't even go to court. It shouldn't be uh, illegal anything to support homeless people in a nonviolent way, which it was. The port said, well, some of these people might have COVID. Nobody knows that anyway. And the safest place for people camping or otherwise is to be outside, six feet distance between tents. Like, where is Melanie Mark? Where is Jenny Kwan? You know, these people are supposed to be on our side, MP and MLA. And where are they? Why aren't they, why don't they come once down here and talk to the people at Strathcona, for instance? They never came down to Crab Park one either. So we also went up to city council. We spoke up there. Mayor and council unanimously supported a public park on that four-acre parking lot. So we went through democratic process. We've done that. We want the bird marsh to be bigger. It all, we always wanted a bigger bird marsh. The way the park got designed, it didn't allow for that. That may be to do with the parking lot, yes. Now, after all these years, the park is starting to show wear and tear. Like The caretaker building is literally falling down and has been condemned. We want the park board to build a new one with their money. And they're saying, oh, we don't have any money. That's not true. They do have money. The bird marsh needs to be expanded and needs to be expanded greatly into the existing parking lot where the lot five is called. We've been waiting all frickin' summer for the Vancouver Park Board, never mind the port, take out the invasive plants like hogweed, which is actually dangerous. Take out many of the plants. The bird marsh is clogged with plants, so the birds can't even get into it. They can't fly into it. They can't get the water. So it defeats its purpose. It's not a proper bird marsh. It's not functional. And they're saying, oh, we don't have any money for that. It's, it's BS. The park board has money. They always hide it. As the people say, follow the money trail. Like, just do your jobs and clean out the bird marsh. It is work. It's hard work. And it's Get been done. the police to do it. Yeah. They got lots of money. <laughs> yeah. So they ran a little hose through there for two days and put some fresh water with chlorine in there. And that's all they've done. We asked them to do that. And that's all they've done. So, And they've all gone on either holidays or come back to us in September. And it's like, no. Veronica and myself, we've been talking to these people. And, you know, this is the park board staff who aren't bad people. But we've been talking to them all summer long, going down at the bird marsh, looking at the bird marsh. It's like, no, just pull out the frickin' weeds and the invasive plants, let the birds have their water. Like, everybody here is coming up and complaining about warm water. This lady just came up here and complained about warm water, 
free water at this camp in at Strathcona. And it's like, these birds are down there. They got no water. And they got no voice to complain about it. So they got me yakking about it to co-op radio and Veronica. <laughs> the mainstream press don't care. Mm-hmm. So then what can we do for the listeners of the show and supporters of the camp, how can we pressure the government to fulfill their promises to turn the parking lot into park, as well as, you know, fulfill their promise to the bird marsh and also the Indigenous Healing Lodge? I don't know. That's my short answer. They put up barbed wire, Port of Vancouver Federal Crown Corporation, Vancouver Fraser Port Authority, they put up barbed wire around the empty parking lot after driving out a bunch of innocent, in my mind, homeless tenters. I think Veronica and others, Chrissy Brett was name was mentioned, uh, want to get back there and want to be... But meanwhile, they put up the port has put up barbed wire. I mean, I don't want to climb over barbed wire. And that's the idea. You'll rip your body to shreds. And it's right behind the bird marsh. So that's very friendly towards birds. And meanwhile, the, the park board fiddles around all summer long and don't fix the bird marsh. Yeah, what do you have to do? I don't have a lot of hair left tear it all out is this one is this my remedy and solution to the problem i don't know what to do so that's my rant and it's a true rant i get like emotional pissed off at this kind of stuff it goes on forever let's go can you tell us about what happened in may the idea to move down to crab park and start uh tent city there what was going on then i did a seven day fire for Oppenheimer people just to help them out a little bit and to do a lot of prayers and giving the community an opportunity to check in with uh, ancestors and their own self about having to move out of Oppenheimer Park and then there was directly after our fire at the Oppenheimer Park went out we uh, did a seven-day prayer circle at Oppenheimer with uh, three First Nations and for every day there, I put tobacco in the center of that gathering of peoples. At some point, I was asked to uh, start that fire at um, Crab Park. The fire went out at Oppenheimer Park to let that energy, that spirit, that intention, to let it go. All of the dismantling of that park, to let it go with the fire. Very few, actually, from that community. I was a part of helping them move some of the things out of Open Armour Park and over to Crab Park. I was asked to start a fire over there. So I went there with a fire pit and uh, started that fire over there. What an adventure that is. And so we kept the fire going, and the same fire that uh, was at Crab Park Um, Everyone that came to the crab parking lot also contributed by putting the same medicines that are here into that uh, fire. There's been like 48 members of the community that were arrested to support those that are homeless in tents um, throughout the whole city. It's been quite an education, 117 Parks are impacted by uh, those who are homeless, and there's only 280 parks in the city. So that's a significant number of parks affected by those that are homeless. That's not to point fingers at the homeless, but it is to point fingers at those who create homelessness. And so I 
really point my fingers at uh, bureaucracies and uh, authorities and all those that force, because I believe it is forced, it's not a chosen lifestyle, those who are forced into homelessness. I think that I may be somewhat responsible for those who are homeless, and that is what brings me here both to Oppenheimer Park, to Crab Park, and to Drathcona Park, as well as Grandview Park, and all the other parks around town. When I see a homeless person, you know, I do what I can to be a good neighbor and be a help, and ask those all around me to be that good neighbor as well. When the community was forced out of Crab Park on June 16th, Something that you were telling everyone was that it was really important we keep in mind what the goal was for Crab Park and the completion. So what would it mean for you to for Crab Park to be completed? For Crab Park to be completed, it would be nearly like a lifetime goal, a full life goal. I was really young and able to run and play and played baseball in the community, I camped out, I went all over and, and I was pretty young 40 years ago and here I am in my old age to have the park completed as uh, we spent so many years lobbying and, and working toward would for sure ensure possibility of a generation of children growing up that uh, there is a space for them in Vancouver and in this society. And if you look at the First Nations, for many generations, having been moved from here to there to there to there to here, many of us have not had homes. And so uh, to see Crab Park as a small space where we um, can put some work and value to our lives, uh, to see that a longhouse goes in there and that we could have uh, 28 species of animals grow and grow and grow to that there be many, many more in a marsh and uh, to have waterfront access. What many West Coast communities know as home would sure be the price that we all have paid Mm-hmm. And I would grow old and be really happy to know that there's some little part we've, we have all played to make a, a longhouse and a ceremonial grounds available to the First Peoples. And that uh, the First Peoples walk up tall and invite all of the world to come and see Crab Park. Mm-hmm. So something else that you had us do when we were at Crab Park was take a water bottle and walk over to the marsh and put our clean water into the marsh for all of the birds that were there. Can you tell me, just from your own perspective, what the marsh is like, the condition that it's in, and what you would want it to look like? I'd have to say that I'm, I'm really saddened by its condition these days. I look at the marsh and I see a tree that was uh, at one time lush. The branches were plentiful. The green in the, in the leaves was throughout the whole tree. Today I see that same tree 
and a couple of few of the branches are so wilted and there's no leaves on them and they're ready to fall down dead. That the marsh at one time uh, came right up to the side to the edge of that tree and I'm sure that the roots of that tree were fed by that water. That the plants around the marsh uh, at one time there was uh, big bushes and bushes and uh, other large plants uh, hold the earth there, hold the earth steady and so the growth of a, a tree can be secure. What I know of the marsh today is it's so overgrown I see just the odd few birds in that marsh. I have seen a family of geese that tried to get their little ones to that marsh and it was so overgrown that they walked and couldn't even stretch their duck feet to the bottom of the marsh. Um, the water was so low. And I know I've been other times where the water was high enough that little goslings and, and little ducks uh, learned to swim and paddle in there. Hogweed has taken over some area, so I have fears for the children that play around that marsh, and there's no clearly defined edge to the marsh because of all of the overgrowth of plants, and I don't know what kind of plants are, are in there. What I do know is that they've taken over the marsh and are sucking up the water so fast so rapidly that to actually see the water one really has to have good eyes to focus. Mine are failing me. To see the water I have to get that close and put my glasses on. To see the animals I see no cranes, no herons there and at one time there were cranes, there were herons, there's 28 species of animals that that use that little marsh. I'm sure a bunch of tents would deter them somewhat, but I know a thirsty uh, creature will go to many lengths to get a drink of good water. I have no fear at all. If we looked after that little patch, that little patch of earth, that, that 28 would grow to 56. And from 56 to 128, 20, 22 or 28 or 32 or whatever the number is, times 58. It wouldn't take much. It would not take that much to get that marsh to have enough water in there to have such things like that great white horned owl uh, passing through there, which I'm reading from books that I, I look at. I see white, I've seen one white owl in my life, and it was, sure wasn't in a crab park or anywhere near Vancouver, but it would be, what a day that would be to celebrate, to know that a white owl would uh, pass through our little marsh after a silly dream <laughs> that created the crab Water for Life Society and then uh, Crab Park and the legacy of so many to uh, be remembered and that many children and many generations would come and that the First Nations could uh, celebrate such a success and such an achievement and to speak about uh, reconciliation 
I would say that would be one form, one small piece of reconciliation in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking with me today, both of you. I really appreciate this. As was mentioned in the interview, there will be a second round of court appearances for the 48 arrested for contempt of a court-ordered injunction for protecting unhoused residents in the parking lot at Crab Park and standing strong around the sacred fire as it went through proper protocol of going out. If you'd like to support the accused and hear from speakers on the homelessness crisis in our local community, be sure to join us on September 8th at the BC Supreme Court on the corner of Nelson and Hornby at 9 a.m. Social distancing protocols will be in place. Please wear a mask to the event. PPE will be provided for those who need it. To stay connected with Crab Park and Camp KT, follow Friends of CCAP on Facebook and at CCAPDTES on Instagram, as well as at N-O-G-E-N-T-L-E on Instagram. Thanks to Leah Thompson for that interview. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada, unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us here next Friday, September 11th at noon. Yesterday was the first session of the third Abbotsford pig trial at the Abbotsford Courthouse. We were there to report and we'll have a feature interview on next week's show with Amy Serrano, one of the four activists who have been charged with 21 criminal counts for their roles in exposing abhorrent cruelty to animals at Excelsior Hog Farm in Abbotsford last year. Also, you can check out our live stream videos now on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, from yesterday's court day and rally. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. And now we'll leave you with a song. Here's the Beatles with Free as a Bird. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today. Please stay safe and healthy and remember to be kind to the animals.
This is Ricardo Rivera, co-host of El Bus a las Siete and the Cannabis Science Podcast. I'm here to tell you that Vancouver Co-op Radio is an innovative, non-profit community radio station podcast recording studio with a mission to produce creative and engaging programming for communities whose voices are often underrepresented in the mainstream media. But we need your financial support to help us achieve this mission. By donating today, you will help us to continue providing access to training and equipment for over 300 volunteers who produce over 140 hours of original programming in over 10 languages. Since 1975, we've celebrated Vancouver's rich cultural diversity through our arts, music, and spoken word programming. Please support Alternative Community-Based Radio. Donate today by visiting coopradio.org donate 
or by calling 604-684-8494. That's 604-684-8494. Thank you so much for supporting Vancouver Co-op Radio. You are listening to Vancouver Co-op Radio. 100.5 FM CFRO. We are from from 3Q Little Journals Club. Please listen because this is an awesome place.